You are live with Get Connected, Canada's number one tech radio program. I'm your host, Mike Agarbo, here with John Beeler. We have a pretty cool program today, John. We're going to be talking about the future of transportation, and it's happening as we speak. We see it with electric cars, autonomous vehicles. We see these things out on the road being tested. We were just down in Vegas, and they had, I, I saw probably 20 different self-driving cars. Yeah, it's, pr- it's pretty prevalent in the U.S. Yeah. Not maybe as much here in Canada yet, but uh, we'll be talking with the folks over at Deloitte. So they've come up with a report on uh, the future of transportation in Canada and some of the things that we need to be concerned about. Uh, we will also uh, be chatting about high-end computing, enterprise computing, it's uh, called, and uh, how it handles all the data we're dealing with uh, nowadays. These autonomous vehicles uh, we've been talking about, John, um, some of them, uh, Volvo, they've got a startup, for example, uh, that on a daily basis, their test cars produced 50 terabytes of data per car. Per car. Yeah, it's insane. That's so, a lot of data. Yeah, so we, uh, we'll be talking with the folks over at HPE on how technology handles that. Like, how do they transmit that information? Where does it go? Like, how do they parse through that? Yeah. But let's look at some of the uh, the tech uh, news uh, this week, John. Some interesting stuff happening here. You want to make 20 bucks? <laughs> yeah. Although, so let's, t- let's ex- describe this first. But the thing is, 20 bucks just seems like nothing. No. Uh, there was basically a big uh, class action lawsuit uh, about price fixing with respect to optical disk drives back in 2004 to 2010. So I guess you'd have to be alive during that time. Pretty much. Yeah, but there's not a huge barrier to entry to getting this $20. No, you just have to have an address. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 kind of the crappy thing, though, is... Uh, so basically, this, this um, uh, class action lawsuit was a bunch a, a number of manufacturers were sort of colluding for price fixing uh, yeah. and and overcharging for this technology which pretty much anybody that was alive that had technology during 2004 to 2010 you probably bought multiple things like blu-ray or dvd players yeah uh stuff for your computer system cd drives video game consoles that have a cd all those or dvd drive yeah. in them the, the, the why i was kind of upset is because they're basically the part of the class action lawsuit is everyone that requests it can get 20 bucks as part of this uh, settlement. No receipts necessary. But the, sh- the, the crappy thing is, John, if you did have your receipts. And I probably do. I'm that kind of a hoarder. Yeah. And it won't matter. No, no. I, I bought all kinds. Remember HD disc DVD drives? Yeah. I still have mine. <laughs> it's Blu-ray beat that one out. It did. Yeah right after I bought all of my favorite movies on that format. <laughs> you went all in. Well, I did. There yeah. was a great deal at Best Buy to do all that. Well, stuff. I wonder why now. Well, yeah. exactly. <laughs> they yeah. knew something you didn't. Uh, so what, what do you have to do? Uh, basically, you just need to go to a website and uh, put in your information and it will, it will tell you uh, basically uh, what you need to do as far as uh, personal information. It's oddclassaction.com. But if you just Google class action lawsuit optical disk drive, you'll find it as well. And there uh, you can put in your information. Now, the thing that kind of was annoying that we were been talking about is the fact that you can get 20 bucks without any receipts 
if you have receipts though, you still might only get 20 bucks. Yeah. Because you get paid after everybody else without a receipt gets paid. And there's only 29 million. No, exactly. That's not a lot. No. I mean, that's, that's a buck a person in Canada almost. Talking about class action lawsuits, there's another one on Apple. Yeah. This is interesting. I, and I remember this, uh, this launch. Uh, it was for their MacBooks and they had this new keyboard that they were just touting as the next best thing since sliced bread. Oh, and I got that laptop. Did you? Yeah. yeah. It was called the butterfly keyboard and basically referred to how the keys actually pressed down. Yeah. And it sounded like a miracle back. You know how Apple can make anything sound like yeah. a miracle and they do good. They do good products, but this just didn't work out the way they had hoped, I think. No, the big problem was that it was very easy for any debris to get lodged underneath the keyboard and effectively make that key useless. And did you find that? I, I did actually have some problems, but you, at, at least at the time, or a few years ago, actually now, uh, it was my 2016 MacBook. It was the first one with the Touch ID bar. Yeah. Um, it, it They replaced the whole bottom half of my laptop because of that issue. Did you get the same keyboard again, though? No, I got a new keyboard. I know, but was it the same butterfly keyboard? No, no, I got I got the newer style. The scissor one. Yeah. 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 So uh, this is a class action lawsuit. I think it's happening in the States right now. Um, and these would be states, California, Florida, Illinois, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, and Washington. Uh, but the payouts are better than the optical drive. <laughs> so if you... Uh, they're expected to be about uh, 500 Canadian for people who replaced multiple keyboards. Yeah. Although, I mean, that's if you paid to have it replaced. Yeah. I was lucky. I was, I just took it to the, to the genius bar and they just replaced it for free. But yeah. if you paid for it, you're basically going to get your money back. Um, but if you only replace one keyboard, you're going to get 125 us, uh, and 50 bucks for those who, if you only replace the keycaps, cause that was also another problem is sometimes these keycaps would pop off. But, you know, no money for Canadians unless you bought your device in those states, which is possible. It's funny, these class, I, I remember when APC, they had, uh, you know, the, the power bars? Yeah. And um, we still have one around here somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it's the one that got recalled. <laughs> I kept it. But I sent in and said I had it. And they sent me a whole new one. Like, it was beautiful. Hmm. But now it's probably going to burn the studio down here. Well, we're not actually using it. No. It's like a museum piece. <laughs> it's our Essential. tech hoard pile. Okay, we're going to have to take a break, but there's so much more to talk about on Get Connected today. We're going to be talking about the future of transportation, huge uh, trucker shortage. What are they going to do with autonomous trucks, like self-driving trucks? How safe are they? And what about just cars in general? Will we see a day like Minority Report, that movie with Tom Cruise, where all the cars on the freeway are driving themselves? They're all connected. How soon is that going to happen? Well, we're going to find some answers. You're listening to Get Connected here on the Chorus Radio Network. Back after this. You're back with the program. Mike and John here. Well, uh, technology is uh, in everything nowadays, uh, especially vehicles. We talk a lot about uh, autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles. Uh, what about the overall security uh, of them? We've got a great guest on the, on the line. His name's Steve Marr. We're going to be talking about uh, a report from Deloitte uh, entitled Connecting Canada, Securing the Vehicles of the Future. Thanks for joining us, Steve. No problem. Thank you for taking the time. Much appreciated. Uh, so there's so many advancements happening uh, with transportation and, and vehicles. Why should we be concerned about their security? 
Well, I think in any environment where uh, there's public information, there's private information, and all the nearly all vehicles that go onto the road today have some kind of connectivity, whether it be local, whether it be to a cloud service, uh, a subscription-based service, and obviously that data is people's private property. So the ability to be able to make sure that two things, that we keep that data private, but also that we keep control of those vehicles themselves, those kind of moving uh, supercomputers as they are now, making certain that businesses and that manufacturers and OEMs and the supply chain take that very seriously to make sure that people are secure, that data is secure, and that, that, that safety is built into every aspect of that. I was just looking at some of the numbers uh, in this report, just kind of uh, looking at like life and safety. And this, you know, these these numbers blew me away. Um, the World Health Organization estimates that road crashes cost 1.3 million lives each year. Like it's, that's yes. a staggering uh, amount. Uh, and then uh, non-fatal injuries, that's 20 to 50 million people. It is, yes. I mean, it's a staggering amount, and it's, it's kind of one that over the years has varied, but it's actually with the growth in population, with the growth of the number of vehicles, has almost stayed perfectly parallel um, with, with those over the years. But with all the, the technologies coming out now, especially when we're looking at autonomous vehicles, uh, I guess we're hoping those numbers go down as hopefully computers are better than driving <laughs> than, than, than humans. <laughs> Yes, and that is one of the targets. That is one of the aims and the hopes for this technology is that as vehicles become more intelligent, and we already see it today in today's vehicles with um, many of the features that are in the vehicles, even those with certain autopilot features, they are very heavily built with sensors, with video cameras. They use artificial intelligence to assist the driver. So most of the um, what we call the autonomous technologies at the moment are there to assist the driver. Um, they can be turned on and off by choice. But ultimately, it is whether it be braking assist, lane assist, just to remind the driver and to assist them in those split-second decision-making process, which often is the cause of several of the accidents on the road. It's interesting. I don't know if you saw this article, John. Um, the European Union is looking at potentially limiting uh, the speeds of cars in, in the future, like setting a, a cap on how fast cars can go depending on the speed limit of where they are. Yes, and again, that's one of the advantages and, and many of the drivers for this kind of technology coming into place are governments, are metropolitan areas, are provinces and cities where they're very interested in, okay, how do we control traffic? And traffic is a living organism. It only moves as fast as its slowest component. Um, and so the ability to be able to say, well, we'll set it at this, at this certain speed limit to protect life, to, whether it be external to the car, internal to the vehicle, um, but also then to balance out the flow of traffic through an area is incredibly important. And that's where they're starting to see some of these uh, changes and the benefits of this technology. I, I imagine when you do something like that, where you manage the speed, you have the ability then to, within the traffic flow, of changing how the cycles of the lights, you know, through traffic and things like, there's a whole bunch of other, like, it's almost like a, a sliding scale, right? Yes, it is. Yeah, it's, yeah it is. Uh, and, and it's it's a very, um, you know, I always talk about the department I work for is emerging technologies, but actually the most important thing is how these technologies converge. It's not just about the vehicle, but it's also about the infrastructure and it's about the cloud, how the vehicles talk to other vehicles, how they talk to that infrastructure. So a vehicle will let a vehicle know behind it that there is an obstruction in front. A vehicle will let um, the infrastructure know that there is something wrong and therefore they need to control or divert traffic. Um, these things, again, are 
all the parts of that jigsaw are kind of in place from a technological perspective. We're not quite sure what picture we want to see yet. <laughs> and every city may look at that quite differently, but but it's starting to evolve, yes. Do you think we have a long way to go there? You know, I, I remember Minority Report with yeah. Tom Cruise. You know, the freeways <laughs> are all controlled. Well, well, that's where I was getting at with Steve and, and sort yeah. of the sliding scale. As, as, as we start off maybe start off slow and having a more managed slower uh, speed for you know certain parts of the city for example as all these systems come online and everyone's in agreement that these systems are working we can raise the speed limit because we're people aren't driving anymore the systems are but how far away are we are we from that steve i mean there's a lot that has to happen do you know what i mean yeah. like the, yeah. the car manufacturers the cities um governments pedestrians, yes. pedestrians you know governments have to get on board like God, that seems like a hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think quite that long, but I think you're absolutely right. I think this is going to be an evolution punctuated by some small revolutions. And I think that's kind of where we are now. And you're seeing a lot of trials of these types of vehicles on the road, um, right up to the higher levels of autonomy here in the GTA and various other areas around the world, um, where we are trying to see if they make life better, if they make life easier, if they're more efficient on our transport systems, if they make us greener. Uh, and then certainly the safety aspect to it. But those, the, the evolution of 5G, the evolution of AI, the sharing of that information between manufacturers, the growth of the infrastructure, and to be blunt, the adoption, people's willingness to uh, engage with this technology. Um, but what we've seen over the, the, the history of these kinds of small breaks in technology way back to the internet, mobile banking and ATMs and various other things is that ultimately um, utility will outweigh the concern. If, if it's so useful for everybody, there will be some adoption. And what we're seeing at the moment is organizations really being the first very early adopters in this, um, whether it be fleet owners, as you're seeing with Waymo in, in the taxis in the US, or the trucking industry, where they are really looking at, okay, how do we solve some of the labor shortage problems? How do we solve some of the, 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 the problems that um, face the industry on those first middle and last mile solutions? And so I think you will see small steps but over the long period of time, there will be a very mixed market, but it will it will evolve and it will evolve. And as people grow with more trust in that technology, it's. but I, I'm with you. I think it is very much an evolution. It will be some time before we see uh, that being the dominant technology on the roads. What kind of resistance are you seeing? Is it from the manufacturers? Is it people's adoption? Like, where is the, 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 the sticky point? Uh, certainly not the manufacturers. I don't think you'll find a manufacturer in the world that isn't either heavily investing in or has invested in this technology already. Um, it, it changes the market. It changes the, the way people buy vehicles, own vehicles, share vehicles. And that to them is a very attractive market. They can see the way both uh, governments are going from an ecological perspective, from a financial city um, planning perspective, and, and they, they know where they're going. I think still... To your point earlier on, we're still in that point of evolution where people have to have the trust. Um, and this has happened in other industries and other forms of transport, uh, fly-by-wire in aircraft. Uh, a lot of people were very resistant to that when it first came out and chose other methods and other, other types of aircraft. But eventually, when everybody felt comfortable with it, when it became the de facto standard, 
it became adopted. Now, people don't think about that kind of thing. Um, I think we need to just get to that point and there will be some comfort, I think, with the ability for humans to interact for a long time yet. Um, and then the, the nature of connectivity and people's comfort with the data that they give to their vehicle, the data they share with their vehicle and the utility of that vehicle, it will grow and it will grow and it will grow. And, and to the point I said before is once utility becomes so useful to them, um, it will become part of everyday life, I think. We're talking with Steve Marr uh, on uh, a report uh, published by Deloitte all about the future of transportation and more so how it relates to the overall security of it as well. I'm going to get you to hang on the line, Steve, because I want to dive down a little bit uh, more. Uh, one of the factors I want to talk about uh, in this whole revolution are Americans. Uh, and also I want to talk about the labor shortage uh, when it comes to trucking. You're listening to Get Connected here on the Chorus Radio Network. Back after this. You are back with Get Connected, Mike and John here. We've been talking about the future of transportation. I mean, you know, we're living it now, John. You know, we we see the electric cars. Uh, there's a lot of developments in autonomous vehicles uh, as well. Smart cities are starting to percolate uh, as well. Uh, on the line, we've got Steve Marr uh, talking all about the uh, Deloitte uh, report on uh, security and the future of transportation. Thanks for joining us again, Steve. No problem. Thank you. So we talked about just all the different components that have to come together to have this future state where the cars are driving themselves. They're all talking to each other uh, as well. Uh, but as I said before the break, uh, a big factor, I would say, are Americans. Uh, I don't know if you've watched TV lately, but they <laughs> seem to politicize everything. Like I'm watching a lot of these Fox News, uh, you know, panels basically saying electric cars are stupid. Uh, you know, we shouldn't be adopting them so fast. And do you know what I mean? Like, it just seems that it's so polarizing. And, you know, a lot of Americans like to drive their cars. And so are they going to give up that freedom? No, I don't think they are. And I don't think they need to. Um, as I mentioned before, I think this is going to be such an evolution. I don't think the people who are concerned today um, are going to be in a position where that's a problem. I think there's going to be a shared ecosystem for a long period of time. And it will be their children and their grandchildren who will be growing up, not necessarily having to have the burden of owning a vehicle, you know, uh, maintain a vehicle, and then that will be their choice. Um, I doubt very much we are anywhere near mandating, you know, within certainly within my working life of somebody coming to us and mandating that we cannot drive our vehicle ourselves. Um, it's going to be a long time. And if anything, that's one of the challenges for the AI engines is that they will be sharing the roads with non-AI. Um, but but as far as the, the the states goes, ironically, it is one of the um, the largest test beds in the world is happening in the US, uh, Arizona, California, and there are non-standard. You know, a lot of the new entries into this market are um, some of the chip manufacturers, some of the software companies. So it is not now that traditional uh, OEM that the large traditional OEMs who are. Uh, being bought into that market and own that market, they are seeing competition from a completely new space because the technology and the nature of how they can put that together is changing and how they interact with customers is changing. I guess you could kind of massage it as well or, or force people into having uh, acceptance of autonomous vehicles, uh, I guess, in insurance, right? If the computer's driving it, it's probably 10 times safer than a human driving it. And if you want to go on the freeway, then it's got to be in autonomous mode. Well, we're already getting discounts for having autonomous braking in our vehicles. That's too. true. So. That's true. Yeah. And again, going back to, you know, the nature 
Electro connected vehicles, there is so much you now recorded these vehicles out today, not even known particularly as autonomous vehicles, are small supercomputers on wheels uh, with edge technology, artificial intelligence all built in. And they know everything the vehicle does. And we, we have to then look at the advantages of that. And insurance is absolutely one of them, driving patterns. And again, looking at the nature of a green future, how the car is being driven, um, as well as the safe, safety aspects of how that is being driven. Because I really think that the financial implications of switching is going to be a driving force. Well, money talks, right? Yes, right. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and yeah. in, you and I both made that decision uh, not too long ago to switch to an electric vehicle because of the cost savings. But I feel safer. So I have a Tesla. Model 3. And I feel safer in it, John, because I've got uh, the auto steer on it. It's not like full autonomous, but it, it's like keeps me in the lane and yeah. keeps me, you know, the right distance uh, from the cars in front of me. And it does, you know, the automatic braking. And uh, like I still have my hands on the wheel and I'm, I'm, you know, air quotes driving, but uh, I just feel safer because it's just keeping me in the center of the road. Well, there's more eyes on the, that road. Yeah. In and the they're, they're better eyes than mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, and it's, the, it's the constant awareness for what is around you as well. The number of, uh, whether it be video or LiDAR sensors, which are the, the primary technology used in most, although not, not in Tesla, um, is something that is just, you know, they're making millisecond decisions about everything happening around you. And again, as I said, at the moment, it's really there to assist you rather than replace you. And I think that will be the situation for quite a while. You mentioned labor shortages with truckers. Uh, you know, we're, we're reading a lot about that. I mean, over in uh, the UK, you know, with the, all the economic stuff happening there and Brexit, they have huge shortages of uh, truck drivers. And, uh, you know, that's, I think, a worldwide phenomenon as well. So what, what does the future hold in store for that? And I think that's where you're actually seeing some of the drivers for growth in autonomy at its earliest stages. A lot of those, what we call the middle mile solution, how you get goods from A to B, from the warehouse to the store. Um, over short and long distances, that is where we're having trouble with with both that that, that kind of um, the, the the worker capability in in just the labour shortage that's happening in almost all the developed countries where we're talking about autonomy. Um, so the ability for them to be able to take a, a truck. So at the moment, if we take a truck to the edge of a city, then it has to do a five hundred mile trip along a freeway. It can quite easily do that uh, with complete autonomy and then get to the edge of another city. So you're actually massively shortening the interaction with humans, but you're massively expanding the utilization of that vehicle that can then turn around and do the same. It doesn't have to sleep for eight hours. It can be turned around and just sent back. Um, so the utility of it, the green footprint of it, and then the labor element to it. But again, I don't see that being a huge short-term issue. I think there is always concerns when we think about technology taking over people's jobs, but it's going to be that evolution. It will change the nature of some of those jobs much earlier than it will wipe them out. I have to be, I have to be honest, Steve. I, I get a little nervous when I think about these giant trucks driving themselves on the freeway. And I'm sure a lot of listeners probably feel the same way. Yes, and, and again, it's something that at the moment is being tested primarily in countries where there are long, straight freeways, and they are being tested in a technique, what they call platooning, um, where actually what they have is three or four of them together. Um, it's pretty clear when you're coming up to them, they have test signs all over them, so people know that they are approaching something that is an autonomous vehicle. Stay clear. <laughs> <laughs> but but again, I think it's just time. It's it's once we understand the data, once we understand that, um, you know, they are capable, they are safe, 
then people will learn to interact with them. We have done it before with other technologies, and I'm absolutely certain we will do it with this one. Maybe they'll be better at uh, not hitting the overpasses here in the lower mainland. <laughs> we seem to have a big problem with trucks hitting the overpasses and screwing up every, every other day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't know what's that, going that, on. That will, that will definitely be a software update. If <laughs> <I'm sure>. <laughs> <laughs> Overpass avoidance. <laughs> We're talking with Steve Marr uh, about uh, a great report from uh, Deloitte, uh, all about uh, connecting Canada, kind of the future of transportation and, and how it kind of relates to cybersecurity. Can anyone download this, uh, Steve? Yes, absolutely. If they go to the Deloitte Canada website, it's available in several places. Any kind of Google search will come up and it's also on uh, my profile on LinkedIn. Well, I want to thank you for joining us, Steve. No problem. Thank you so much for taking the time, guys. Thank you. When we come back from the break, more tech to talk. Stay tuned. You are back with the program. Mike and John here. We're going to talk supercomputers now. And it's kind of a, a big concept, but uh, hopefully we've got someone that's going to uh, dumb it down for us. Uh, his name is Nick Dubay. He's with HPE. And uh, we're talking today about Frontier, the latest in supercomputing. Thanks for joining us, uh, Nick. I'm glad to be here, guys. So we hear this term a lot, supercomputer. What makes a supercomputer? So a supercomputer is basically a, a very large scale computer that's built to run applications at super scale. What does that mean? It means that it's going to have, I mean, it's going to have CPUs or GPUs, right? Embedded into it. But in, in the case of Frontier, we're talking about 40,000 GPUs. That's, that's kind of mind blowing when you just start thinking. So about that's that. like 40,000 graphic processors. Yeah. Yeah. The, the late, actually, and when I say the latest generation, uh, in the case of Frontier, it's the MI250. It's not, it's like the next generation. It's the one that's just about to ship because most of them really all got shipped to build, to build Frontier. So, and what they do is you put all of them together to run very large scale problem. And what, what do we mean by very large scale problem? Think about putting, doing climate, a planetary scale climate forecasting. Uh, it's like meta workloads. Think about one of the greatest um, possible use cases for, for Exascale, and we'll talk why, why, what Exascale is, but it's to do a digital twin of like a nuclear fusion reactor. And when you do that, you're able to simulate the, the fusion reaction, understand the boundary conditions, but then in simulation, change the parameters that emulates the physical um, um, kind of an, uh, the, the real reactor, but it's much less costly to do that on a supercomputer. And then it allows us to actually understand what kind of parameters we want to tweak to actually maintain and sustain fusion in the real world. Sounds safer too. <laughs> in a way, yes. But that's all, the, the biggest challenge with fusion today, right, is that we know how to how to get there, we don't know how to sustain it. Yeah. So, so what we're doing now and what, what uh, Frontier will enable is how to simulate it so we understand how to sustain it in the physical world. So you're talking about a supercomputer called Frontier. Uh, there's 40,000 of these GPUs or graphic processors in, in it. Um, how many CPUs? It's about one-fifth, so it's about 8,000. Only 8,000. Oh, <laughs> that's still a lot. So, okay, so you've got like... 48,000 processors in this thing. Like how big is this thing? So um, it's actually quite dense. It's built out of uh, 74 racks. 
But uh, our, our definition of rack in the supercomputer world is a bit different than what you would see in normal IT. So in, in a traditional data center, a, a high density rack will be 10 to, 20, 10 to 12 kilowatts, right? Each rack in Frontier, I hope you're well seated, but it's 400 kilowatts per rack. Okay, so that's like 40x. The rack, think about the, a rack on Frontier as being like, it, it's like a very large fridge. Uh, and in a way, it's not a bad analogy because Frontier, the rack for in a supercomputer like Frontier is all about providing power and most importantly, cooling to all of these pieces. In a normal data center, your 10 to 12 kilowatt rack is going to be air cooled, right? And you're going to have airflow coming from the front, going to the computer, so on and so forth. There's no airflow going through Frontier because it's all liquid cooled. So, so we have a lot, there's big pipes. Uh, there's basically a, a two and a half inch pipe coming in for, for cold water supply and the two and a half inch pipe coming out. And then Frontier gets wired at 480 volts AC, right? Not, not 120 or not 240. They're kind of high voltage, high amperage. And so, and that's, that's one rack. Now Frontier is 74 of those all connected on a very high speed network in order to be able to run very large codes. So you got like 74 fridge sized racks. Yes. All of those add up to when Frontier is running flat out to 25 megawatts. Now people are like, how big is 25 megawatts? We have, if you, if you go around the US or, um, or Canada, I mean, we have a, a small uh, hydro plant. I, there's one close to where I, I live here. That's, that's about 17 megawatts. And that, that, that actually provides power to thousands of houses. So Frontier, all one computer, 25 megawatts. So that that's a lot of electricity. Yes. Yeah. So it's really important we we do um, good use of it, right? And we're we're sustainable not only in the way we build it, but in the way we use it. But ultimately, you know, from the example I used initially, um, if we if Frontier allows us to understand how to sustain fusion energy, it's a very good energy investment in the long run. So what's the market for <laughs> for supercomputers? Like how many how many do you expect to sell of these things? So I, I don't I mean, think I can afford one, but <laughs> uh, I mean, frontier size system, right? Systems, right? Exascalar, um, and you can find that publicly. They're they're like half a billion dollar per half half a million billion half a billion. Oh, half a billion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you have so, pay, do you have payment plans? <laughs> <laughs> so half a billion so, dollars. Uh, wow. So I'm guessing you probably systems that are. Sorry, Sorry Nick. those are systems that are typically bought by governments, and 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 basically they're there to advance uh, to advance science to to advance some of the some of the, some of you know the the Earth's largest the humanity's largest challenges. So, but you can get right a front a, a mini frontier, which would be like one or two racks worth of frontier for a few million bucks. And 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 I'm not I'm not the sales guy, so I mean. <laughs> but, uh, we have a promo code we, a much smaller system we have a promo code actually. for listeners you get uh, two hundred thousand dollars off a, <laughs> a mini frontier um so like so half a billion for the full thing like is the market big i mean i guess you only have to sell one <laughs> so we've actually sold a, sold a few and there's there's wow. another exist scale class system that's coming up um it's called el capitan that's coming at uh, at lawrence livermore labs yeah in um uh and and some in a not so distant future so um so so that's 
But those are government, uh, typical large-scale government procurements. What's important, right, is that those large government procurements, those large systems, actually drive the technology on the accelerators, on the networking, on the storage, on the software that you can then all benefit from when you're buying a mini frontier, when you're buying one or two racks of the frontiers technology. So, and that's where that rolls into all the verticals we sell in, whether it's in the, you know, automotive industry that's doing crash sim, whether it's in people doing weather forecasting uh, and commercial weather forecasting is something that's really growing fast on the rise uh, right now, whether you're doing, uh, you know, bio and the pharma industry or uh, financial models, or I mean, oil and gas is also doing a lot of simulation. So all of that tech, all, actually flows down every single one of our commercial verticals, and that's where everybody ben- benefits from it. We have been talking with Nick Dubay from HPE all about supercomputing. They're frontier supercomputers. You can get one for half a billion dollars, but <laughs> money well spent. If you're into nuclear fu- <laughs> fusion or climate modeling, that is the computer to get. Nick, I want to thank you for joining us today. Very good. It was good chatting with you guys. When we come back from the when we come back from the break, more tech to talk. Back after this, you're back with Get Connected. Want to give a shout out to our sister show. It's called the App Show. It's on every Sunday across Canada on the Chorus Radio Network. Uh, if you're in Toronto, that would be a Saturday night, and it's a good program coming up uh, tomorrow. Uh, we've got uh, some uh, cool stories we're uh, we're following there. Uh, number one, we'll be talking about Rogers again. <laughs> Uh, and some of the credits they're offering and how we feel about that. Are they really credits? No, no. Uh, we'll also be chatting about artificial intelligent generated art. You've come across a new, is it a site or an app? It's a bot. It's a bot that makes mind-blowing out-of-this-world art. Through, just from from text just from keywords that you put in a phrase a sentence yeah a song lyric whatever yeah like take me down to paradise city and it'll and it is amazing art like you've sent me a, a few of them and we'll be talking about how it all works and what it's the future of art potentially could be and uh, we'll also be chatting about voice assistants google their voice assistant and uh, how you can actually have conversations with it and get it to take kind of notes for you and just where all that is going, not only with Google, but with uh, Amazon Alexa as well. Want to give a shout out to all the folks that helped put the show together. Of course, John and uh, Robin back at the studio. We'll see you again next time.